are back, ladies and gentlemen, to Out of the Main. We were born at sea and raised on radio, and we are back for part two of our interview with Neil Stupidhouse, bassist extraordinaire. Yeah. I uh, I put the podcast at risk. The complete history <laughs> and future of the podcast was at risk because I dared to uh, present a counter-argument to our guest, which I know is probably a no-no. Would you th- think so? Uh, I think at the uh, professional podcast convention, there was a whole talk on this. Yeah? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Did you stay for it? No. Okay. No. Then I guess we were able to go ahead. So uh, I'll set this back up. Neil um, was discussing about his influences coming from New York, very intense, very sophisticated, very heady music that he was absorbing. Um Came to L.A., and at the time, the what we know as the Yacht Rock or the Session Musician circuit was in full bloom, and he had, didn't have a lot of knowledge of the players because it, it didn't really catch his attention, what they were doing, mm. whether it was too bland by comparison to what he was listening to or whatever. But eventually, obviously, he learned how to fit in, and so I asked him about keeping your best licks in your locker and saving little bits and little nuance for for the, the right moment, but for the most part, having to sit in a pocket, right? Mm-hmm. And yeah. he gave an answer, and we come back this week, and I had a little counter-argument mm. to present to him. And as I said, we don't know at this point whether he uh, walked out of the interview at that moment or not. But we're about to find out. Let's find out. So let me um, give you a counter argument to that. Not not an argument to it, but using your own work as an example, because I'd like you to follow up on, you know, a great bass part to me often is something that when I listen to the song, to your point, I don't immediately go, wow, that bass player is blowing it out. But if I go back and say, okay, I'm studying Neil Steubenhaus, let's see some of the tracks that he's done, and I'm focusing strictly on the bass part, then all of these other brilliant things are revealed to me. You know, So the bass part is able to not be noticed when you don't need it to be, but I'll give you an example, and you can tell me maybe about the session or the design of this bass part. When I, I had never once really paid attention to the bass part of the Commodore's Night Shift. Until I started to study this week and said, well, well, what did Neil do on that one? Oh, it's fretless. And if you listen to that song and just focus on the bass part, it's bass solo quality going on there. I mean, it's a brilliant part with the double stops and all the things that you do in that. So that line was an intentionally very active line. What do you recall about that? Not much. <laughs> <laughs> it's like it's like forty years ago. Yeah. Um, I think that I overdubbed on that, and and they were just reaching out for different ideas. So nobody told me what to do, is my recollection, and I just tried things. And I think I think Vinny played on that. Am I right? I don't. I think it was Vinny. Yeah. And every and and uh, and they didn't they didn't mic- micromanage him either, and he added little tiny nuancey things, because again it's this you know it's a song. But my 
my gut was always to overstep on the first run through. Yeah, that's right. You did say that. Because yeah. worst thing that's going to happen is they say, okay, that's, you know, that's overkill. That's too much. And that way you get the musical thoughts in your head out of your system. And that happens, that happens a lot. And if on a first take, you get those musical thoughts out of your system and you overdo it and they like this, this, and this, and this great. Then you just, you know, you just help to add compositionally to the, to the song. And um, that's probably what was going on then. It was really a long time ago. but Yeah, I knew it would be challenging, but it's a brilliant part. Really I'll give you is. another example to drop in, John, a song that okay. I've heard a million times. We've probably talked about it a few times. But go back and let's listen to a little bit of the bass line in Pages, You Need a Hero. I got news for you. Nothing's lost if what we have is So I don't know if you've done that recently, John, but no, I did I that did as recently as today. Ah. And that's a part that's really fun and clever to listen to in its subtlety. What do you remember about that session? You Need a Hero was added when the record company was frustrated with Jay Graydon over something I had known nothing about. And they went back to Bobby Columbia, their original producer, and they asked him to add two tunes. So I... I think it's Jeff Percaro on that, right? I believe so, yep. Yeah. So we got to a small studio with um, Steve Kahn, I think, was on that, as I recall, who's such a genius guitar player, under underrated, in my opinion. This guy, oh, my God, just no. And and um, I guess the vibe was right, and, uh, and Bobby never told me what to play. So I just played whatever I thought was going to work. And, you know... Remember, there's there's a couple hours to do it. I think we did two tunes. Yeah. So, um, but you liked it like that, huh? Where you had to knock it out first, second take, fairly quick, huh? You don't you, you don't have to. It's it's where they accept it. Yeah. You, you know, you you're just going to keep doing it, and if it feels great by the by the second or third take, because you really, as you go on the first take, you start to to know what didn't work, or might not have worked and you try something different and once you're locked in you know it's Vinny and i always call that it's peaking now mm -hmm. that was our line because there's a point where you're getting you're still getting creativity and then on the on the downside it's getting stale and you're repeating yourselves and what are you going for really some kind of magical perfection that nobody hears but you <laughs> Listen, listen to all those records, the Motown records from the 50s. They did a song. They did three songs in a three-hour session. They're not going to pay any more than the than any overtime. And there's mistakes. And tell me, give me a list of people who give a shit. <laughs> <laughs> I just did. There's yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, right. And, 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 and really, the business never learned that. Record producers who got picky, <clears throat> they never learned that. That all these people out there listening... They don't hear that. They don't know. We get fascinated by them. We hear things that we think are mistakes, and we're fascinated by them because they're still in there. And we know the reason that they're still in there is because of what you say. You know, it's instinctive, yeah, and the rest of it because yeah. nobody cares. Right. I love. I love it when people tell me, "Well, you know, I wish I could have uh, produced Stevie Wonder because I would have cleaned up this and cleaned up that." <laughs> oh, you would have, <laughs> would you? 
Really, you're going to clean that up? Let's yeah. pay, because everybody noticed those flaws. Yeah, right. Like are, that's that's really that's um, it's it's arrogant. Yeah, and it's it's a pomposity that that is a problem, and always was in the business. Because when when Steely Dan started perfecting and using a, you know the first drum machine and all that, everybody thought they were Steely Dan. You know that's their process. That's their artistry. It when the Bee Gees started using a loop and making per- perfect disco records, you know seriously. No. Let me ask you, if we could go back to um, what you said about how you might approach a session on a song, knowing when to start to add maybe some layers or finesse or complexity. John and I always chuckle at the observation. We think it's the coolest thing in the world that <laughs> every mus- musician seems to save something for the fade out. <laughs> so it's like, all right, I got a really good lick, but it only belongs three seconds before we're faded to nothing. Is that an approach that you even articulated? Or was that, again, just an instinctive thing of being a uh, musician? Like, we know when to sh- when to do this and when not It's to. instinct to know that it, that, it, that it no longer matters in the in the body of the tune. You can go for it, and they can and they can get rid of it. They can cut it out. So plus, you're having fun because you got a perfect take, you know, or close to perfection as as it's supposed to be, and it's really good. And now you're just going to have a blast in the fade. And um, and if they don't like it, they don't have to use it. So now you're just you know, it's just kind of a relief in a way. Yeah. It feels like a game to us. Yeah, like you're trying yeah, to get away with something. <laughs> well, I was going to save this for our lightning round, but since we're on the topic, let's see. It's eating dessert. Yeah, you know? let's listen to go. some. Yeah. Uh, John, I was going to save this for the lightning round, but we got to do it okay. now. So the right. end of OCOE off that same pe- uh, Pages album. Listen to what some of the licks that Neil sneaks in here at the end. I don't know if you remember right. that, Neil, at all, but there yeah. were some good little juicy tidbits there. That's that's not forgettable, so I remember it. <laughs> well, that song, <laughs> what's cool about that is that song is so tight with you and Jeff, you know, it, it's rhythmic and it's syncopated. You guys are so tight. It's and at Vinny, the end, you get that chance to, what? Vinny Caliuda on that, I think. Oh, that's it? Vinny? Yeah. Okay, okay sorry. Yeah. Yeah, it's Vinny. And you were right, it was Steve Kahn on uh, and You Need a Hero. Yeah, so that was, a, th- those were after sessions when the when the record company kind of <clears throat> i don't I have, I have no idea the backstory with jay i know it was problematic and it, it, those were difficult times in a way because <clears throat> it was so creative and we were so excited about it and um and Vinny was still you know let's call it a, a novice at at um at doing studio perfection work and jay graden is at the top of the heap of of it's got to be exactly the way he hears it because God forbid anyone else, you know. No one hears like Jay. And OCOE, like by by that time, they pages were on their third album, so it was make or break, you know. So I'm sure there was some pressure there too. Well, well, yes and no because they had switched record companies. Oh, oh yeah, I mean, okay. It was make or break from the first record and the second, which were both brilliant. And the third one, you know, these guys are are writing, you know, Fagan Fagan quality. And, and the market just doesn't understand it. You know, they don't understand it. It's too sophisticated for many. <clears throat> and um, I recommended Vinny. I wanted Vinny. <clears throat> we rehearsed a few times. 
and everybody loved it. And and Jay was already into his marriage to Jeff Picaro as a as a recording, you know, a recording. Um, you, you know, that that's everything in his world. It's perfect. He wants simple, perfect. So the only the only there was only two songs, I think, that made that Vinnie made on the record. And he recorded every single one, every single one. There's a Vinnie version. Oh, no kidding. Oh, boy. Yeah. And I have cassettes of it. Huh? They're, they're probably melted by now. But do you remember um, the session at all to uh, with, with speaking of Jay? Um, I'm kind of making this up as I go here for breaking away. I know you played on the title tech track breaking away. <laughs> I listened to that this past weekend. It's funny because I think it's probably Foster on the piano, and there's a very distinct, punctuated left hand in the verses, and you're just playing like short staccato notes. And I'm thinking, this is all he got to do. And then the chorus comes, and it's it's like this, these two sides of okay, I got to lock in because that's what the rule is on this verse, and I'm following you know Foster's left hand. But then the chorus comes, and you're set free. It's kind of funny. Yeah, if you only knew. <laughs> oh no <laughs> well you're here to tell us <laughs> yeah if you can yeah, i don't know but... if you guys have enough time <laughs> oh jeez. <laughs> yeah. it was it, it was early 80s i guess and i had i had this um <clears throat> i had just bought a vw rabbit and jay jay books this studio on melrose that's in a funky area <clears throat> and i park in the back it's a seven o'clock session jeff david and me and jay comes out and he says Stu, will you just wait in the waiting room? I, I want to just cut Jeff and David first. 7 a.m., 8, 9, 11, midnight. Is there at least a pinball machine in the waiting room or something? No. 1 o'clock, 1 o'clock, 1 a.m. Oh, my. Oh. Jay comes out. Jay comes out. Okay, we got the track. Stu, let's go to my house and do and do the bass. Ah. I'm just going to pack up and and I got to go to bed. So it's 1 a.m. We get out of there at 2 o'clock. My car is broken into in the lot, windows smashed, stereos stolen, and I'm feeling just great. 2 a.m., I haven't played a note. Jay wants to do it at his house. Okay? <clears throat> we go to Jay's and say, oh, I'm sorry about your car, man. <laughs> yeah, we're, we're both sorry. Uh, <laughs> that makes two of us. And I get to Jay's house, and... He microscopically, you know, had me record everything. I, mean, I don't care if he hears this. He knows what he does. And um, and everything was picked to the bone from between 1 a.m. and 6 a.m., which is when I left his house. 2.30, 2 maybe, I got there. It's a nice song. <laughs> this is real to real. So, he, so he's yeah. got to do tones. And he's got to do a whole bunch of stuff. Get the is new he engineering it himself, or does he have a cat with him? Um. I can picture him doing the whole like sitting no, running that, the tape no, and the no, board. He, and... No, he 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 had uh, Ian or somebody. I think. Okay. Don't remember, but so my car is smashed. It's two a.m. It's past my bedtime. I have worked the next day, and that's the, and that's what. And so whatever the track was, I don't know. 
I did the pretty best. good. I did the best I could. <laughs> if you can hear it, then you know, then you got good yes. ears because Jay takes the low low frequencies from God knows what cycle on down and just wipes them out. Yeah, I noticed that on those Juro records, they are light, thin in the end. And I, don't know if it's... And I always have to struggle to hear. Yeah. To, to hear the bass the way I want to hear it. And I think right. I'm not alone. <clears throat> Most people, other than bass players, want to hear a little bit more bottom end. Yeah. And um, you can you can hear the difference on You Need a Hero and the, on the Pages record to some of the other tunes where it's, it's a Jay Graydon mix. You can see it. Oh, okay. I'm, within the same album, you mean? Yes. Okay, I'm going to do that today. Yeah, that's Jay's style is... is it's very concentrated mid-range. Yeah, yeah. I noticed it, but not being uh, sophisticated enough to understand why. I thought it was just a different master. Because we notice on Spotify, which is how I listen to it, um, the singles sometimes seem like they're different masters than the rest of the records. That's well, that what I is often it was. true. That is often yeah. true. But Mark Jordan's Blue Desert is another example. has that same tonality that Neil's talking about. Does you right? Yeah. Well, let's maybe we should end on a high note then, well, and not so, that so, is there. So in other words, the backstory is complicated, and what I played on it, I did every. I you know, I tried to help it along. The Jeff nailed a great groove, but you know, Jay Jay, um, it's not just me. He picked, he nitpicked the heck out of that. The two of them, Jeff and David. I mean, for oh yeah, for six straight hours. Oh. Yeah. Well, we know we spent uh, three hours with Jay on a half-hour interview, so <laughs> we know. That's right. I, I've spent three hours with Jay not and never saying a word. <laughs> Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Well, what about a session or a finished product that you are particularly proud of or one that was memorable because it was so good or fun? And if it's hard to pick one, I have one to ask you about, but I'll let you offer one first. Why don't you ask one first? The Flashpoint record with Tom Scott. That seems like it was a fun album to play bass on. Every album I did with Tom was a fun album to play with, no matter what. Always fun, always. I mean, I credit with Tom with really kind of getting, you know, helping me get started. Tom never, or I would should say rarely, depending on whether, you know, what, what the circumstance was, he never restricted me. 
And what he got was sometimes things he didn't expect at all. And I like the first time I played with him <clears throat> on one of the songs that Jeff and I, that, that I, that was failing, we were playing it and it was just miserable and everybody was, you know, getting high and what have you. And I just started playing it at a completely different tempo with a completely different baseline. Oh, and, and, and everybody woke up and Jeff kicked mm. in and Jeff kicked in with like that goodbye look, uh, drum part. Yeah. And boom, we were off and running. And, and that was my, that was what started my experiences with Tom and he loved it. They were just all smiles and, you know, you know, the pot influence smiles, but all smiles. <laughs> yeah, still count. And, and every record I ever did with him was, I had, I had a lot of control Tom referred to me about musicians and about things. And, you know, we, 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 we got along great to your credit. You must have great self restraint. Then as I could say as a fellow bass player, because I've never, I don't think I've ever heard anything where I thought, God, he's overplaying there. It always seems to service the song going back to what you said earlier. So good job. And you're representing us bass players quite well. That's, <laughs> that's but that's a, that's a, uh, you know, a, a, a group effort. That's every, everybody deciding yeah. Or and and a lot of times I'll self decide say oh that's that doesn't fit at all you know and then you then you you hear what you're going to do for me and you hear the licks that Anthony plays at the end and and it's it's like the world just changed you know and um and you and everybody starts to stretch out a little bit for mm -hmm. for attention but let's for face attention. it we're not you know I'm not Anthony Jackson <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's right you got Anthony Jackson. So know your ability and know your limitations. Yeah. Well, I had right. one more thing to add, Tom. I know you're you're asking about. Um, we we got together on Christmas or for our family Christmas. The two of us are brothers, and our other uh, brother, listener Mike, as he's known on this show, is also a bass player, sax player, bass player. And we were just kind of this is pre studying. You know, we knew your name. We we see it come up, and um, but actually before I sat down and studied, I said, "What's your?" Initial impression. What do you think of when you think Neil Steubenhausen? I wrote down what my initial impression was. And I think this conversation bears this out, Tom, if you don't uh, disagree. I wrote um, that I hear echoes of Jaco refined into a simpler style to fit into the world of popular music and service the song. There's still a fusion side that wants to speak out every now and then. That was my assessment. That was my upbringing. You know, and... <laughs> I met Jocko when, yeah, when he got on the plane, he got, Pat would fly him to Boston and he would come, he would come with his, his, with one base, not two, no case, <laughs> no shoes. There's pictures of him from on the New York subway like this. No shoot. Yeah. But that was later. That was like, that was that was from the illness. Uh, if, okay. If it's the timing I'm thinking about. Okay. This, this is '75, and and the buzz is starting to go around. You better go to Zircon tonight and see the Pat Metheny trio. You got to hear this guy; it's insane. And um, <clears throat> so we went to see him, and it was insane. It was insane. <laughs> so. So that changed that changed yeah. the face of, uh, in my opinion, that changed the face of electric bass playing, because across the board for everybody. Because now, yeah, now now it's it's, I mean this this guy comes along and he invents he has innovations 
that are that, that you can't even count on one hand all wrapped into his style on electric bass that you never heard before never and and we got to be friends i actually bought a couple of acoustic 360s every time he came to town i lent i i was the lender <laughs> and sometimes i lent him a bass if he didn't yeah. bring a bass <clears throat> i mean this is a guy who carried around that the cheapest little gray patch cord you know the 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 switchcraft one with the with the the, the curly one the angled end not even curly oh the angled end okay you know, he couldn't care less about any of that and um <clears throat> we were mesmerized so everybody's learning portrait of tracy everybody's learning you know all the tunes from the, from the the the, uh, the the debut record and we became friends enough to when i auditioned for herbie hancock in 77 we met at the hotel had I had about a 45 minutes with Herbie, which was uh, mind blow blowing. And then it was worse because then I get out. Jocko's in the hallway. He puts the headphones on me. You got to hear this, Neil, man. You got to hear this. And it was heavy weather. It, oh, it wow. was Birdland and it was yep. Teen Town. And, you know, basically your head's exploding. This this shit is is another level of brilliant from a bass playing and, and a song um level that that is cracking new ground you, so this is before it was released he had a cassette for way you before, here? oh this on a cassette yeah way before it was released wow they were they had just finished huh wow wasn't even mixed wasn't even mixed and he's playing me this stuff and he's dancing in the hallway and doing this thing and it's insane <clears throat> and um and and so we were friends you know we played his his version of racquetball in florida and and uh he played me stuff at, at the house, you know, when he was married to Tracy. <clears throat> and and um, that influenced everything, I guess, is the answer to your question. How yeah. could it not? How could right. it not? But I but I learned early on when I watched all these bass players come up and they were imitating him exactly and playing fretless exactly. And, um, and I thought, that's not going to work. That's yeah. not going to work because that's not Jocko's playing is... For that stuff you know for and for him and, yeah yeah exactly yeah. for everything that's right. him and that works around him and the stuff that he's right. created and so um but could i take it out not a chance i'll tell you the bass player who i think influenced more people than than anybody pre-jocko was paul jackson hmm. okay you can hear paul jackson's influence is in jocko it's in Abraham, Abraham Laboriel. It's in almost every R&B bass player that I hear post post James Jamerson and, and, you know, post Paul Jackson. Paul Jackson couldn't read a note. He couldn't play anything. I never saw anybody more instinctive in my life just coming up with something and it making. He made the song. He made all those Herbie tunes. He created that style. I think it was all Paul. And I, and I noticed his playing in so many bass players. And uncredited, I might say, because I don't know who else besides me is, is calling it out loud. But Jocko played, played Paul Jackson stuff. Everybody did. Everybody took a piece of that. Because it was all style and instinct without, without um, forget soloing chops or anything like that. Theory, without yeah, thinking <clears throat> theory-wise. He right. played... 
he played on this song called a spook that's it was for a movie called a spook that sat by the door And it was on in Downbeat magazine. It was a ripoff. Oh yeah, I remember those. Yeah, with Butterfly and some other tunes that were brand that were post the Chameleon record, that were Herbie, and um, and Harvey was going on it. It was um, no Harvey was on it. It was Harvey playing those songs. <clears throat> Two years later, that song is called Actual Proof, and they're still playing it today. Everybody plays actual proof. It's a Herbie classic for an unusual tune with an unusual form and an unbelievable bass line. The bass line on the plastic record was a one bar bass line that went boo, 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 beep, boo, beep, boo, 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 beep, boo, beep. That was Paul's bass line. Herbie told me this story straight that when they got to the studio a year later with Mike Clark playing drums, Paul played a new bass line right off the top of his head it was a two-bar bass line it was do 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 everybody bass every bass player <laughs> that bass line every bass player it's required material paul came up with that bass line on the spot on the spot and herbie had to change everything because he geared the song around a one-bar bass line and he recognized now that this it, was so good now yeah. it's a two-bar phrase yeah Wow. Herbie adjusts, changes everything, and that's all, they still play it live today because actual proof turned it. Vinny and I used to always say, actual proof. That's it. That's that's the name of the game. It's it's in one key, and then he has this little move, and then it's a step higher. Nobody knows. It's the most genius tune. There's no bridge, there's no nothing. It's just 16 bars. And it's wait a minute, no four, bridge or 14 bars, no bridge. <laughs> well, yeah, fit right in today. Then. Well, remember, caught, yeah. remember yeah. the genius tunes that had no bridge are the Wayne Shorter tunes. There's a zillion of them between 60s. <clears throat> After Wayne started writing for Miles, all those songs like Footprints, there's no bridge, there's no bridge. That's genius. It's all Wayne wrote 12 bar tunes, Nefertiti. And 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 um and fall. These tunes are just they're they're pictures. I feel they're like pictures. I'm back at Berkeley. <laughs> I remember all of these lessons. <laughs> they're images and they're and they're genius. They're not dumb four bar tunes that are just the bridge is the same as the chorus and you got the different lyrics. It's not like that. It's it's um it was uh sophisticated advanced songwriting, and that was actual proof. Paul Jackson influenced everybody, including Jocko. I'm positive about it. All right. And you can hear it in um in a lot of, you know, Jocko added a lot more to it, but it's all there. It's all there. The little fret move. Abe Laboreal has got tons of Paul Jackson. Well, I feel like I went to base school today and I didn't Woo. have to pay the Berkeley tuition to do it. So uh. that's it feels like stealing, Neil. So thank you so much for being yeah. on the show. Wow. Uh, we'll have to have you back because I have a feeling there's more in the chamber for uh, stories you got. I told yeah, you it's great too much, but you know, it's there's a lot there, man. It's impossible to look at, you know, 40 plus years and just say, well, this session was fun because yeah. a lot of sessions were fun that never that never saw saw the light of day 
Well, some of the not fun ones were interesting stories too. Talking about the grading thing, so they don't all have to be fun to be interesting. They, now they were you know? fun. They were fun, and and I don't want to get it wrong. Well, no, break, breaking away wasn't you know, and, and well, the fun, but twelve hundred dollar yeah. repair to my car, which is more than I made on the on the session. yeah fifty bucks for the session or whatever that the rate was, was back fun. then. <laughs> but but a lot of the stuff that had you know conflicts and things yeah. involved were still. Uh, the the meat of and potatoes of it were were they were always fun. It was always well. We're learning from all of that, you know. Whether they're good stories or bad stories, that's why we suck this stuff in. We do this podcast to talk to you guys and learn this stuff. Yeah. We, you know, we're not doing the podcast for the money. I could tell you that <laughs> we're doing this so we can Richard, talk to you guys. I understand exactly. That's it. Yeah, you did. Well, I'm I, sure. I'm going to ask the final final question for the bass players of the audience, and that is, what was your acts of choice during the uh, like the pages sessions era? And what's your acts of choice to this day? What are you playing? Uh, uh, it's another can of worms. <laughs> I had a Fender Precision that I added a back jazz back, jazz pickup on way before there was a PJ. That was my instinct because I always thought that the 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 Precision Bass split pickup worked on more records than a jazz bass did even though that's a, you know, that's, that's subjective. And a lot of pe- people will say no. And, um, you know, you could talk, we could talk to a lot of players about it who, who use jazz bass, but <clears throat> that was what I thought was the magic combination to add a little bit more depth and have the back little mid range thing. J- James Tyler, who was the manufacturer plays who made the bases I play now, he did all the modifications to it. We went back and forth a zillion times fixing wiring and nonsense it was a bastardized p base that's what's on the pages record and most of those until it got stolen in 1980 <gasps> oh, oh. Wow. every artist has a story about something getting stolen whether it was uh have, Jack I, bartley's I, guitar or, i have several uh, but, I, Kenny didn't, but tapes. I didn't get that back my car oh my car was targeted i left it in the in the back covered for a half an hour and i had a toyota supra with these fancy leather seats 1984 toyota supra it had seats that were worth way more than the car i don't know why i couldn't tell you their marketing their 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 marketing reasoning but it was a jaguar basically the seats so i got out to my car and the this the car was on four blocks and everything was gone <laughs> front seats back blocks. seats gone they sold on the on the aftermarket for seven grand car was worth three four wow and uh they took that the base was in the back i had advertisements everywhere i looked for i searched for it for months i put an ad in every music store so my theory is a car thief his kid has my base (laughs) yeah he's probably doing uh uh you know four chord songs with it that's no bridge that's my theory. <laughs> it might it might never have seen the light of day and james tyler rebuilt me a precision jazz exactly to what we did with that one but of course nothing is exactly the same right ever true ever and um and that was that was the base of choice then and the five string that he made me <clears throat> the early 90s is my choice now because it sounds the best i've played basses that play a little bit easier and are but but i the way that bass sounds is always commented on 
And he duplicated that precisely with the same Dan Armstrong wired pickups, who's long gone deceased. And um, Dan Armstrong wired the pickups on that P base that was stolen, also. A genius, a, a, a crazy genius. I don't know. Do you know who Dan Armstrong is? No. I do Dan not know. He was famous in New York before you guys were born. And there was a, st- mm-hmm. a, a store in the village that every guitar player went to. It was Dan Armstrong. That was the name of the store. Oh. Everybody okay. went there. Everybody in every band anywhere. And he did he did the work. And everybody also went to Seymour Duncan later on. And he did the pickups for Jeff Beck and for Clapton. You name it's it. like that Mike Kuntz guy here in Detroit be, where anytime right, someone right. stops It had to be in, Seymour. Yeah. And yeah. those years, it had to be Dan. Dan Armstrong wired those pickups in his kitchen for me. The precision pickups. Because the five-string bass, nobody figured out how to get a balance with five strings because it's a two and two. So the so electronically they're balanced. He figured it out. It's his pickup in this bass. We matched it for the bass that James built to to duplicate it. Not the same. Not the same. Yep. Well, never we're is. the stories of the never one that is. got away. Yeah. Yeah. Well, my ears are better than I thought because I was listening and I thought that sounds kind of like a P bass, but not quite. And I was actually right. So mm-hmm. I'm glad I asked. So thank you for the long answer. Uh, and thank you for being here again, Neil. We will definitely have you back Thanks, another guys. time. Get more stories out of you. And until then, if you want to fill in any details, you know, let me know. We will do that. All right. Thanks again, Neil. All right. Thank you once again to Neil Steubenhaus, especially for coming back for two parts, because now I really feel like we're tipping the scale in this contest between how many bass players we have on the podcast and how many drummers. Yeah, we've gone bass dominant in the last year or so. There's no question. We have. We have. Um, And funny thing, uh, next week's episode is going to be about a certain somebody who started his career on bass. How's that for a This is true. All right. Let's uh, hit the lightning round, shall we? Yep. Okay, super easy peasy for me. Found well, it. I have no found it, Sue, so I'm going to defer oh, to you, and then okay. you get to uh, boomerang around or Jeez, snake draft. This is going to be great. Yeah. All right. Well, um, I am going to the Breaking Away album, the uh, Al Jarreau masterpiece. Okay. Uh, and I'm even going to use the uh, the track Breaking Away because uh, we've got uh, Neil Steubenhouse on bass, and it just doesn't get any better than or yachtier than being found at sea with El Jarreau. Let's listen to it. So yeah, now we get to hear a little bit more. We only had the little snippet before, and it's... um it's good to expound on sometimes it's difficult to pick up on the nuances of what a bass player is doing even for somebody who knows what to listen for so it um it deserved a second go around for sure yep that's got jerry hay so some of the names that you might recognize on that particular song michael boddicker's on there uh jay graden of course so it's very yachty it's very found at sea and it's worth repeating all right, all right. buried treasure have you I do. All right, let's hear it. to go? I thought we were snake drafting. All right, well, I'll go again. Go ahead. All right, I love it. Uh, Buried Treasure, doing a little research here. Again, last week we mentioned how Neil Steubenhouse plays in a lot of different genres, right? Uh, here's a Buried Treasure from Billy Joel's album, uh, 1986. That was The Bridge, right? Mm. Uh, do you remember this hit? It was a single. I don't remember it, but it's called Baby Grand. 
it uh yeah it's a duet with him and uh, Ray Charles, and the song is written about the glories that are a baby grand. So you're not going to hear a ton of really great bass flourishes, but it's yet another style for Neil Steubenhaus. Well, I'm lonely, she comes through. forgotten about that tune yeah that's why it's a buried treasure my friend so apparently they got together um and billy contacts charles about maybe about the naming of his daughter alexa ray after charles and that's how it sparked this conversation they decided to collab wow yep all right uh buried treasure uh should i do my final thought now here oh you're gonna do this no no. yeah you're talking about uh, great bass flourishes Mm mm-hmm uh lack thereof and and earlier we were yeah right and (laughs) earlier we were talking about uh Tracks that deserve a second spin, second attention. We need to put more focus on what Neil did, fretless, on Commodore's Night Shift. We visited this song a few times in the past. We visited it just in this interview with him, but we need to hear a little bit more of it because the fretless part on this tune is absolutely stellar. Top to bottom, hit it. Well, I had rediscovered, uh, listeners, you may remember that song in season four. Yeah. Brought it up as a buried treasure. I can't it. I, now I can't eat Dang. it. It's so good. And I, that's before I even knew that Neil was on it. Now I pay attention to the bass. I've got yet one more layer to just be exactly. infatuated with. Yep. Great fretless. Again, the many styles that is Neil Steubenhaus. All right. Final thought. All right. So that snake draft puts me back on final thought. Yep. Why does my final thought never get to be final anymore? <laughs> well, I am, once again, letting Neil Steubenhaus have the final thought. Okay, well, this time then I, mean. I would say for people to come back next week, uh, we're going to paddleboard our way further out into deeper waters. It's getting dangerous now. We're moving further away from the yacht, but we're going to study one of the great sonic minds of the 80s. We teased that we were going to start getting into discussion about some of the production techniques, the sounds and things of the 80s. Well, this is... I think in many ways that this is a guy that defined the sound of the 80s, but the good side of hmm. what the sounds of the 80s are. And we'll dig deep into that. But this guy is the guy when you think about great sounding records of the 80s. And we're not going to say who it is? No! Okay. Well, I already said, though, that he started out as a bassist well, in a bar band. try and put the pieces yep. together. Search bassist, bar band. You'll probably actually come across my name. <laughs> Anywho. Uh, all right. Well, let's let Neil have uh, the final thought on his approach to playing bass. Because you mentioned the stuff about the locker, mm-hmm. in and out. And I came across, it's not an instructional video. It's an interview he does from back in the 80s. You'll see from his hair and from the uh, <laughs> recording quality. But um, and he talks about... Throughout this entire interview, his approach, and I just thought this was interesting and might be worthy of paying forward to fellow bass players. Here it is. We can all practice, um, you know, all kinds of scales and uh, pentatonic scales and what have you. You know, we all know a lot of those kind of things, and um, we can practice all those little things, and they can all be part of soloing in context of a song or, you know, a jazz kind of context but um 
Really, if you, if you really want to be noticed in the solo world, it's really a matter of just thinking of things that are just not ordinary. You can, you can play a solo, and if you want to copy a saxophone player's, you know, idea of melody and, and everything, then it's going to sound great. I mean, you're going to, you're going to sound like a, a, a great soloist. Is it unique? Is it memorable? You know, maybe, maybe not. I think the most important thing really is to just find unusual things, which is why I like to just hear... Unusual notes, dissonances, and mm -hmm. things. You know, in all honesty, I'm, I'm in situations where I'm required to be a soloist maybe 5% of the time. For me, I love being supportive. I love, I can play 20 minutes straight just playing a great groove if it really feels terrific and there's different little things happening on top. If it's not going anywhere, it's good for two minutes. If it's going somewhere and constantly moving and there's interesting harmony or other things or rhythmic, th you know, rhythmic things that are changing on top, then it's, you know, that to me is the best fun I can possibly have. Okay, well, who gets to say ahoy polloi this week? What's ahoy polloi? Ha, it was you. <laughs> you said it first. 